Content in this episode may be graphic or triggering. Please take care while listening. Attention all true crime and mystery lovers. Are you tired of reading the same old detective stories? Well, look no further because my book, The Case, is here to satisfy your cravings for a thrilling and suspenseful read. Follow my journey as I unravel a complicated homicide case while almost losing my own family in the process. The case has twists and turns at every corner. You'll be on the edge of your seat until the very end. But don't just take our word for it. Crime and Cookie Juice followers everywhere are raving about the case. They can't get enough of the clever plots and intriguing characters that keep them guessing until the final pages. So why wait? Purchase the case on Amazon today and experience the excitement for yourself. Trust us, you won't regret it. Welcome back to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. We hope you're cozy and warm inside with a glass of bourbon or maybe even a hot chocolate. If you haven't poured anything yet, now is the time. Before we pour over this evidence, As always, tonight, we have a very knowledgeable and interesting guest. We heard your feedback. You all love learning more about the evidence and our justice system. So we will continue to bring you the best experts. Before we get into tonight's topic, we just want to remind you all that the holidays are just around the corner. If you haven't done so yet, head over to our merch store at CrimeAndCookieJuice.com and get your true crime lover or yourself some CNCJ swag. This week, it's 15% off with the promo code CCJUICE. And we listened to everybody who was asking for sweatshirts. It looks like we weren't prepared, but we do have them now. So go and get your sweatshirts and stay warm this winter. And And just drink bourbon and listen to us. And just so you know, we have big boy sizes. I'm so proud of our team for putting together. Yeah, we got big boy sizes. I'm talking about two XL. XL? UXLT and oh, tall. Yeah. See, that's what people don't understand. When you're six foot five and a big boy like I am, we need big and tall. Big so and tall. We got the CNCJ, two XLT, three XLT. It goes all the way up to five or six or seven. So that's so, crazy. That is crazy, but that okay. I, I appreciate it. We so you love can you. eat anything you want this winter during the holidays and still fit into a sweatshirt come January. That's right. That's right. All right, Chris, did you pick a favorite review this week? Let's hear it. Fatima, I have one for you this week. This one just touched me. It's titled, What's Not to Love? I absolutely love the professional relationship and personal friendship between Chris and Fatima. You guys know how to captivate an audience and keep our attention. I was devastated when they canceled the show Reasonable Doubt, but even more excited for this forum slash podcast. You guys rock. Thank you for seeing CJ. I can never get enough of a great thing. I don't oh, know I love who, it. I love it too. I don't know who that was from, but if you hear this review, send us an email, claim your review, and uh, we will send you something that we have in store for you. Yes. Keep them coming. All right, Chris. So tell us, are you drinking cookie juice tonight? What you drinking? <sighs> I had to sit out a week of crime and cookie juice for and not drink because of my my minor, very minor procedure that I had last week. But I'm back with a vengeance, guys. I have been <laughs> uh, making up for that one night uh, a lot here lately. So tonight's bottle is Jameson Black Barrel. Fatima, you should be familiar with this bottle because I think we had it on the road maybe once or twice. I don't remember a special occasion mm. or anything we had it for. But it, it, it became my favorite after the pandemic or during the pandemic, I was drinking a lot of this Black Barrel. You've got a lot of favorites. I do have a lot of favorites, but I'll say this about the Jameson. It's one of the bottles that I have to keep it in stock at all times. It has some notes that are nutty. It's very, very smooth. It's sweet. And this is what I think makes it it's so smooth. It's a little spicy, but it has mm-hmm. a lot of vanilla in it. So it makes it very, very smooth. So I love the bottle. Love the uh, the look of the bottle, and uh, I love the taste of the bourbon. Have you met a bourbon you don't like? No, we'll I, keep I it at think, that. I don't, I don't think I, I. I don't know. I don't know if I have. I've not tried them all yet, but I'm. I'm I think I'm coming close to it. So all right, I got to show you what I'm drinking tonight. Okay, I'm. I'm. I'm afraid. What are you drinking? What? what Why? Is it? Cause I, I, you've been killing me these last couple episodes, dude. I no, mean, it was a fun re- one. Stepped it up. You have stepped it up tremendously. 
really I'm cheating though, because I have friends who love bourbon. So this one was recommended, but also I've had this and I love it. It's four roses. roses. Yes. Right. Cuatro rosas. Yes. I love this one. It might've been the Ryan Widmer case, yeah. which was the very first episode I filmed on Reasonable Doubt. And I remember mm -hmm. sitting with you all and you were having your cookie juice and right. said, do you want some bourbon? I was still trying to seem cool to you guys because I had just joined the crew. I came in later. So I was like, yeah, let me just grow a little hair on my chest. And it was Four Roses and it was really good. And yeah, yeah, yeah. I think this one might be my favorite. And here's why, because I... We've talked about the sweet bourbons and the smooth bourbons that are more vanilla and caramel, but then there's those spicy ones that lean more a little toward cinnamon and nutmeg and spice. This is sugar and spice and everything nice. <laughs> That's four roses. Like really? when I drink it. Yeah. 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 I always want you guys to hear the sounds. It's like the old, the old time seven up the, commercials. The seven yeah. up commercials. Like, ah. uh, no, it's like spicy when you first sip it and then yeah. it just gets smooth. Yeah. So I'm a big fan of Four Roses. Who makes this? Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey, Four Roses Distillery in yeah. Kentucky. Yeah. yeah all, the, all the best bourbons come out of Kentucky. We're going to talk more about that in the upcoming episode. I'm excited about that. Yeah. All of the best bourbons. And ladies and gentlemen, like that, like we already said, it's Christmas time. And if you are one of those women that are struggling to get your man a gift, show up with some bourbon. Or Jameis. crime and cookie juice merch. Yeah. <laughs> that, there you go. You should get a bottle of bourbon and a crime and cookie juice sweatshirt. <laughs> there you go. Best gift ever. Yeah, I like this one. Highly recommend, especially the holidays. It feels very holiday-ish. I like there it. There you go. That's right. Um, but it's only Tuesday and I'm having a bourbon. Yeah, we got to yeah. we, we cut like back having, on all these podcasts, bro. We've been, I, gotta, we've been I, I like having bourbons on days that end with why. <laughs> no, I'm bourbons. joking. God, I don't drink that much. See, here's the thing with cookie juice. You have to drink it responsibly or else your perception of things can be thrown off. Vision can become blurry. Things may not seem as that they are. Your attention to your surroundings become compromised. Intoxication is something that can lead to mistaken eyewitness testimony. And the truth is, we all know, especially us who work in the justice system, that you can be completely sober and still misidentify a suspect. So how does it happen? Let's start, like we usually do, with a little story. September 25th, 2011, Latrice Johnson is waiting on the front stoop of her parents' house, waiting for a food delivery. This is in South Philadelphia. The time's about 9.30 p.m., and it is unseasonably warm for that evening. Her 17-year-old son, Khalif Ladson, sat next to her, cradling her six-year-old niece, Deneen Thomas. Three of her other seven children were perched around them, and across the street, is another cousin. She noticed two figures walking down the street on the opposite end of the street. They were wearing hoodies and long pants. The two figures had their hoods up, the strings drawn tight. Suddenly, they drew handguns and opened fire. Johnson dove on top of the children and shielded them with her body. Bullets ricocheted off the brick house. At least 12 shots were fired total. Then, according to both Johnson and Lane, another eyewitness, the shooters just ran off. Looking down at her niece, Johnson saw that she was bleeding from one of her legs. In a 911 call placed at 9.36 p.m. that night, Johnson's desperation is evident from the audio recording. My niece just got shot, Johnson yells. Screams are audible in the background. A dispatcher requests an address and then asks, ma'am, the person that shot her, what did he look like? Black male, white male? Johnson replies, they got on hoodies, they're black. Arriving at the hospital, Johnson realized that she too actually had been injured. Shrapnel had caused lacerations on the lower part of her body. An investigator asked if she knew who the shooters were. Johnson's answer suggested once more that she had no idea who the shooter was. One black male wearing a gray hoodie and the other with a black hoodie and they both had black sweatpants on. That's what she remembers. Her son and the other eyewitness, Latoya Lane, had also been brought to the hospital. And her son says that he saw two to three black males in dark hoodies. That's all he saw. Latoya Lane says she saw two or three black males. 
They made no identification. Overnight, however, everything changed. According to police, a confidential informant relayed a tip. A teenager named C.J. Rice may have been involved. By evening, Johnson and LaToya Lane would change their stories. One of them would say that she had seen C.J. Rice at the scene. And the other would say that she had seen his friend, Tyler Linder. Here's the thing. Six days before the shooting, which is Tuesday, September 20th, 2011, 17-year-old C.J. Rice walked into a physician's office to have his bullet wounds examined. He had been shot two weeks prior while riding his bike. He was in a lot of pain. He could barely walk straight due to the injury. And he also had a fractured pelvis. He told people he must have been mistaken for someone else when he was shot. Now, both Rice and Linder had alibis for the evening of the shooting of the six-year-old. Despite all of that, they go to trial and they're both convicted. The problem is physicians believe, especially the physician that saw C.J. Rice six days prior to the shooting, believes that he wasn't capable of committing the crime, walking there and running away from the scene, as eyewitnesses said, because of his lacerations that were still healing and his fractured pelvis. It just didn't seem possible. But the other problem is these eyewitnesses had no idea at first. They couldn't describe anyone. And it turns out they actually knew C.J. Rice. CJ had gone to high school with Johnson's son and Johnson's son was one of the eyewitnesses that was on the stoop and he couldn't identify the individual in a hoodie. We know it's nine 30 at night. It's dark. It's late. And they're across the street yet. Somehow the next day he's identified. And after looking into the case further, because right now his case is going through appeals they are realizing that there is no audio recording of the interviews at the hospital where CJ Rice and his friend are identified as the suspects. There's really very few notes about how they even end up identified, which is crucial because there is no other evidence in this case. There's no guns. There's no other physical evidence that tie these individuals to the crime other than eyewitness testimony. Yet they couldn't identify the individuals that night even though they knew this person. Now, this case has still not been overturned. C.J. Rice, all these years later, this happened in 2011, he is still behind bars. His physician at that time, which was his lifelong pediatrician, is still fighting for him, believes that had he had proper representation, which is another issue that he had inadequate counsel, and had family been called to testify to the alibi, and had it been looked into, this eyewitness testimony or eyewitness identification that happened at a hospital with very few notes and recordings to show how they made the identification, then it's, they claim a wrongful conviction. Mm. Chris, tell me what your thoughts are on the case you just heard. We have two people who are saying they're unable to identify the person that night. And this is reminding me of a case we had on reasonable doubt. We had a lot of cases, right, of possible mistaken eyewitness Mm -hmm. identification where the first night they're saying, I didn't get a good look. The I couldn't see the person. I could tell you, you know, it was dark. They were black. They were white, whatever. And then suddenly the next day they're identifying someone. But in this case, they're identifying somebody they knew. What are your, how do you feel about that? If you were the investigator on the case, why couldn't they identify this person the day before, especially if they know them? So that that's a huge issue for me because the, we brought them in and I'm just putting myself in the place of the investigators, right? So we brought them in the day prior and they couldn't, they had no clue as to who this person was. Then they go home and I'm sure they've had visitors. They've had people that are coming in and talking about the crime and and all it it runs the gamut of things that happen, especially in certain areas or certain, certain unities of, of when you've been a victim of a criminal act. And then the very next day you come in and you can identify the person that was responsible. See, that raises a huge flag. As a matter of fact, I think I've told you about a certain case that the exact same thing happened to me the night before. My witness could not identify the person that was responsible for the murder. I was investigating the following morning. She comes in and mm-hmm. she outright knew 
who this person was. Found out she was fabricating, right? Yeah, absolutely. I brought her in. I, I, I went out, talked to the guy that was that she says was responsible. And because I had an identification, I put him in jail. I put him in jail for the 48 hour extension. We had a, a time frame that we could take somebody into custody and put him while we're still conducting our investigation. So I put him in jail for that 48 hours. And then I brought her in and I grilled her in that interview room much longer than I grilled him because he's, he had absolutely no clue as to what I was talking about. He knew about the homicide, but he didn't know who was responsible. So she finally came off of it and told me exactly what happened. And she was made to do it by some guys that were that were friends with her boyfriend. And, and uh, there was some, some issues with the lineup where she could see a tattoo that only this person had. Here's the troubling thing. That case never got solved. And here's why I ended up putting her in jail because she gave me false information, her giving me false information. Now she's a non-credible witness. So now I can't use her in the court of law. She was my only witness in that case. Now I don't have anybody that witnessed the murder. So I was never able to close that case. The reason why I'm mentioning that is because I want people to think about it. If you're ever put in a situation where someone is trying to get you to falsely accuse someone of some sort of crime or falsely go down and make a statement to law enforcement, you could be doing much more damage to the case than good. That's why you're just a great (laughs) investigator because it's obvious that some, you have to understand as an investigator, this is not a good eyewitness identification. Mm-hmm. It's not solid, especially when it's somebody, you know, we're not talking about now I'm going to show you a lineup and this jogs mm-hmm. your memory. Oh, it's that person. I've never seen them in my life, but now I see that face and it, that's who it is. This is somebody you've seen throughout your life. You know right. them and suddenly mm-hmm. you can buy them. Not to mention the, the surroundings uh, of that night. It's dark outside. It's late. They're across yeah. the street. They've got hoodies on and they drew the strings under. So it's really tight. You could barely see the face. So it's understandable they didn't get a good look, but suddenly now they have identification What's also scary is that these individuals had alibis for that night, but despite all that, they were still one of them. CJ Rice himself was convicted to clarify the co-defendant based on his alibi. Somehow he was acquitted, but this goes back to once again, adequacy of your, of your counsel. And unfortunately, CJ Rice didn't seem to have that. I I do want to also just quote the source of this story. It's, it's actually really fascinating. It is a story by Jake Tapper from CNN. He has personal knowledge of the story because his father is the pediatrician in the case who had seen CJ Rice most of his youth. The story, the article is from the Atlantic and it's titled, This is Not Justice. Unfortunately, CJ Rice's case is very similar to cases across the country in the United States. And here are, like usual, some statistics on how eyewitness testimony can go so wrong. Eyewitness identification is often fallible. Surveys show that most jurors place heavy weight on eyewitness testimony when deciding whether a suspect is guilty. So it's not surprising that eyewitness misidentification is by far the leading cause of wrongful convictions. Nationwide, 75% of wrongful convictions that were overturned by DNA testing involved erroneous identifications from victims or witnesses. Now, what causes unreliable eyewitness testimony? It's scary because it does happen so often. So what's happening? Well, there's a few factors, and I know our expert tonight is going to be able to get into them more. But to briefly state the main things that contribute to misidentification when it comes to eyewitness testimony is misinformation. So people just they their memory is contaminated by something. Somebody asks a leading question misidentification in suggestive lineups. There's also cross-race bias. That's something I would love our expert to talk about a little more tonight and how that happens. We really tend to only be familiar with people who look like us and are of our same culture. And when it comes to identifying somebody of another culture, 
our bias comes in and we don't quite, we don't really know how to differentiate based on facial characteristics. And let's talk about the, the biggest one. I think that we deal with a lot is the lineups, for example. So scientific best practices for conducting eyewitness lineups require that the person administering the lineup, not know who the police suspect. So that person has to have no clue on who the suspect already is. And this is the only way to prevent witnesses and administrators from influencing the outcome of the identification procedure. This means also that the people administering it can't know who the suspect is. It's called double blind lineups. Are you, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with these, Chris. Has this always been the way that your department practiced as long as you were there? Absolutely not. No, we didn't start doing the double blind identifications up until maybe 2010. That's when they started becoming way more prevalent. And uh, how was it done before that? We would just show a lineup. And you would know who the suspect was? We would know who the the suspect was. Yeah, absolutely. When I first started investigating cases, videos were not that prevalent in police departments. We didn't have a lot of videos, but we I, I started trying to or started recording everything that went on in the room, just audio taping, recording everything. As long as my suspect was inside of that room, I kept the tape running. I never shut it off. So I would come in or either my witness, I, if my man, I recorded all my witnesses. And that was in every case that I worked. When we got to, as far as lineups go, and we got videos, we were able to record videos. Then I did the exact same thing. I kept the video running the entire time that we were doing the the, the taping. So that witnesses or jurors could see that this person has been sitting in this room this entire time. I brought the lineup in, I put it down in front of them and asked them, read off our admonition sheet, and then asked them to tell me if they saw the person who was responsible for the crime. Mm-hmm. Fast forward to maybe 2010, that's when we really started doing the double blind type lineups. And I think that's probably the best way and best practice moving forward for all police departments across the country, because now it it just, that's just one layer of fighting for your cases that you won't have to uncover any type of bias or any type of uh, wrongdoing in your investigation. If you do a double blind lineup, nobody can say that they can make the allegation that you you somehow mishandled the lineup, but it, it helps strengthens your case when you can do that type of lineup, such as a double blind. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're seeing a lot more departments going to the double blind lineup method. And I think that's positive. Absolutely. Psychological experiments have shown that lineup administrators who know who the suspect is end up cueing witnesses toward that person. They may not even know it to administrators conducting double blind lineups because these, the informed administrators are more likely to ask witnesses about the suspect or smile when witnesses are looking at the suspect rather than at another person in the lineup. It's just Mm -hmm. natural, right? You're excited with that person and they've just confirmed it. Such behaviors are often inadvertent, but neither lineup administrators nor eyewitnesses may be consciously aware that they're happening. So these subtle behavior cues, they do affect eyewitness decision-making and they are more likely to choose the suspect without anybody recognizing that's happened. Here's another one that's very dangerous. Witnesses who have received confirmatory feedback provide testimony that is highly persuasive to jurors. We know what that means, right? Oh, you got the wrong guy, good job. When one study, people playing the role of jurors we're able to reliably distinguish between accurate and mistaken eyewitnesses when the witnesses had not received any confirmatory feedback. For witnesses who had identified somebody and nobody said anything to them afterward, the law enforcement didn't mention anything, that was it, that's thank you for your time, goodbye. The role of jurors in that hypo, they were able to distinguish who was making an accurate Uh, identification and who was making a mistaken. And this had to do with the confidence of the person of, of the eyewitness. So when the witnesses had received a simple reinforcing comment following their identification, such as good job, you got the guy along the lines of that, 
the mock jurors could no longer tell the difference between accurate and mistaken eyewitnesses. So in other words, the confirmatory remark made the mistaken eyewitness just as persuasive as the accurate ones. It gave them that confidence. Yeah, I could see that happening. I've had several cases where there was now no type of connection between either my victim or my witness and the suspect. Usually those are the cases that are, those are the identifications that are more reliable if there's some sort of connection between, if they knew each other previously, Mm -hmm. if they had a relationship or or something to that effect, there's some sort of connection between your witness and your suspect. Those are, are the ones that I relied upon more, but I would never, never just rely on an ID witness only especially if it's some sort of say it was, it was a bank robbery or something to, uh, of that nature. I would, and, and the person goes, you don't have anything else. You keep working until you get something else. Cause there's a lot of convictions out there that are based solely on one eyewitness testimony, a yeah. few, and that's all they have. I'm cooperating evidence in a case where there is a strong ID witness is just, it's always been something that I've required in my cases. But there were certain techniques that were used when I was working that I could see now how they could end up being a wrongful conviction. And one thing you pointed out, Chris, is how now police departments are adopting new rules. To date, 25 states have adopted core procedural reforms in eyewitness identification, including the double-blind administration of lineups, also including eyewitness confidence immediately following an identification. So how confident are you on a scale of one to 10 that you identified the correct person? Documenting that immediately after is very important, and that's something that needs to be made available to the defense because they need to be able to know what was that person's confidence at the time they made this versus now in court, because we hear about this a lot. There was another case we had that had to do with hypnosis, unreasonable doubt, free Evaristo Salas, just need to put that in there. But in that case, once again, it was somebody who had no idea, then had hypnosis, comes out and they're super confident. We don't know Mm -hmm. what happened in that hypnosis. And when I interviewed a juror on that case, they said her confidence was, was what made me vote guilty. She said, I'll never forget that face. People have to keep in mind (laughs) jurors when you hear that. Yeah. She'll never forget that face because guess what? He had to go to arraignment. He had to go to pretrial hearings. He had to go to preliminary hearings. This man has undergone so many pretrial hearings before the case even went to trial as a, as a defendant that of course the witness in the case and the, in this case it was the victim's girlfriend she's seen this person's face she's seen him numerous times she's now seen him on the news she's seen him in the courtroom so yeah she'll never forget his face but is it from that night or from later court proceedings that's really important but it's scary that only 25 states have adopted these reforms because it sounds like it's something that something that needs to be put in place especially based on the statistics that we're seeing on exonerations and how often eyewitness testimony is putting innocent people behind bars. Now we're saying that 25 states have adopted the procedural reforms, but I would venture off and say that there are more states that have started off, especially with the double blind identification More police departments. I know for a fact have, have gone to it because look, I'm in Alabama and we've started doing it and then starting to spread throughout our state. So I'm sure that some of these larger states and so larger cities, they have already adopted the policy. I'm sure our expert tonight can give us more insight on this. Great. So- Jules Epstein is a professor of law and director of advocacy programs at Temple University's Beasley School of Law. He's authored dozens of articles and book chapters on criminal law and evidence topics. In recent years, Professor Epstein's works has concentrated in eyewitness identification where he testifies as an expert witness. I wanna welcome Professor Epstein. We're so excited to have you. Thank you for doing what you do and thank you for letting (laughs) me join you tonight. Welcome. I've actually had the opportunity to interview Professor Epstein for one of our cases on reasonable doubt. So. I was a little biased and wanted to interview him again because we had a great conversation and it's never long enough for me. I just love picking the brain of an expert. So we had to have you on. Welcome. Thanks. So Jules, before we really get into this and start looking at some of the evidence on this case, are you drinking anything with us tonight? 
My last drink was 44 years ago. So we'll discuss wow. that later. Wow. We gotta talk about our experts, like really yeah, we, being we, opposed we, to alcohol. I didn't say that. I okay. said, I haven't. That's all. Oh, That's awesome. 44 years. So Jules, tell me this. What drew you to concentrate on eyewitness identifications? So I began as a public defender in 1978. Mm -hmm. And the hardest cases you confront are eyewitness cases. And there's a reason. 99.9% .9 of eyewitnesses are not lying. In their heart, they believe that's the person. That belief is not always valid, but it's hard to disprove a sincere but mistaken witness. Wow, yeah. And as I learned more as a lawyer and then began a career as a law professor. And when you're a law professor, you have to write articles, right? That's how you get tenure. This is an area I was fascinated in. And I started learning it and learning more and more. And then I got tapped to be an expert witness because of an article I wrote. And it went on from there. Over the years, I've testified as an expert witness. I've helped get an exoneration of a man convicted almost entirely on eyewitness identification. Wow, who was that? So his name is Lance Felder. He was in jail for 17 years for where we were able to prove who really did it. And then a client of mine 30 years ago whose murder trial I lost, who I was convinced was the victim of mistaken identification was recently exonerated. So I've seen it from every side imaginable. What happened in that one is the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office has a conviction integrity unit. They agreed this was an important case and it turned out they were able to develop information. He also confessed that his confession was coerced and false. Oh, a false confession. We've heard of those. Yes. Yeah, just, just a couple times. <laughs> so it's, it's just something I've learned and continue to study and teach a lot. And what's most important to me, you ready for this? It's not teaching lawyers. Mm -hmm. I'm at my best when I'm teaching police yeah. and prosecutors, because if I can get them to see the science and understand what can go wrong in an eyewitness case, Chris, you talked earlier about how you can burn a witness, right? Mm -hmm. The witness becomes of no value afterwards. Absolutely. It's astonishing to me how little training there is in the law enforcement side on how to investigate an eyewitness case. Look, I'm talking to a group of lawyers here, so y'all understand this, but just, just so our listeners will know, our criminal justice system is set up and there should be a system of, system of checks and balances. And what I think usually happens in that case is one of those balances are not really checked. Because we, as law enforcement officers, we have a duty to, we're supposed to say something when we realize that there's a problem in the case. And I think we've gotten to a place where we're not willing to say anything. Therefore, these things will happen, even in, our, in, even in today's society. So that's the biggest issue I see as far as training goes with, with us, because not, there was not much training available for false confessions or because in our minds <laughs> as law enforcement officers, those things don't exist because we wouldn't do anything like that, but they, <laughs> they do happen. And sometimes it's unintentional. Sometimes it is intentional, but at any time that we see this happening, someone has to be that voice of reason and be willing to stand up and say something about it. Just understanding also that as humans, not even just law enforcement, let's take away the element of law enforcement, manipulating a situation or bringing in unknowingly misleading somebody to identify someone through suggestive lineup or something. Let's just talk about human error. What have you learned, Professor Epstein, about how faulty we could be and what we see? What contributes to us thinking we saw something when we didn't? So the single most important lesson that about a hundred years of scientific research have shown is that the mind is not a camera and the memory is not a hard drive permanent memory. So that means a couple of things. When a situation is exploding, you may get distorted input. 
Um, and you mentioned earlier, maybe asked a question, oh, did the guy have a mustache? All of a sudden in my head, I'm seeing mustache where maybe mm -hmm. I didn't before. So you can't ask that. Like the nope. game, guess who, you know, do right. they have this? Do they have nope. that? Because that's leading them. Right. There's a whole process called the cognitive interview, which is something that some police departments are trained in, which is basically officer, be quiet and mm -hmm. listen. Absolutely. But Absolutely. The, the, so it's the mind is not a camera. And once something is in memory, it's not permanent because I can have some memory of the crime and then somebody shows me a photo and details of that photo can get engrafted onto my memory of the crime so let's take the case you were talking about okay number one there's a weapon why is that important because there's something called weapons focus i don't know about you but if there's a gun i'm looking at the gun i'm not looking yeah. at your face right. okay yeah and it's not even a deliberative process. That's a survival thing. Mm -hmm. So when there's a gun, there's less face time. Number two, distance. The ability of the human eye to see facial features, let's forget that it's at night, drops off after X number of feet. Okay. By 100 feet, it's basically toast. In this case, the distance was 60 feet at night. So with minimal night lighting and the distance, Lord knows what you're able to see even potentially accurately. So how do law enforcement, do you think, explain away suddenly these eyewitnesses being able to identify somebody they knew the very next day? Okay, so they're one of a couple of options. I want to be fair to the police here. All right. Uh, and Chris, I Thanks. thank you. I appreciate that, Jules. I <laughs> appreciate you being fair. I expect you're going to agree with what I'm going to say. You'll be we more fair than cases, me. We all know cases where the first time no one wants to say anything, mm -hmm. not because they didn't see, but because they're scared or it's a thing in the neighborhood you don't say. And that also plays into the investigators' heads because they assume that every time somebody says, I didn't get a good look, they're thinking, oh, that's baloney. So we're going to push you because we know you got a good look. Especially when you're dealing with South Philly, hey, I'm not snitching. I'm not saying what I saw. And where they know each other. Mm -hmm. Okay. So one possibility here, although the way I read this case, that's not this case is the witnesses were reluctant. If that were true, and then later the police calmly talked to them and they said, all right, I really saw the whole thing. The reason I don't buy that here is a couple of things. Number one is again, the nighttime in the distance. Number two is the frenzied call to 911. They're screaming, guys in hoods, I don't know what's going on. Mm -hmm. We're not doing any Plotting, oh, I'm going to cover it up right now. What happened in this case is pretty clear, as you said earlier. Police got an idea. Maybe it's because of this person's dispute against that. And then they show up with some photos. And that's where things go absolutely wrong from a science perspective. Because when the cops know, I have got six photos I want you to look at, and it's number two, right? As you said, even subconsciously, the numbers are stark. Let me read you some numbers. I love numbers and statistics. Right? When you do a study of a double blind, in other words, the witness doesn't know which number picture it is, and the cop showing it doesn't know, and the actual perpetrator was absent. Okay, they stage a crime. Jules is the criminal and they show six photos, none of whom is Jules. It's double blind, only 9% pick a photo. When they do a non-blind study and the person thinks, oh, it's photo number three, somehow that went up to 21% picking an innocent person. What the heck is going on? What do you Some, mean? So it non-blind meaning the, the person the administering it also thought it was a, a thought certain it was suspect? number three. 
Oh, the, the, so the person administering it thought it was number three. And suddenly, and, and it really wasn't anyone. It wasn't anyone, but it went <gasps> up from 9% to 21%. And again, I want to be clear. Chris investigated. I tried homicide cases. I met some great homicide detectives. I don't think they're out to pin somebody. Some of these cues are just, as you said, unintended. But that's why it's so scary if you don't have that process videoed and double blind. I I was I read a study somewhere too about in people who were interviewed after a car accident separately. Yes. I think it was a mock one, and they were interviewed separately, and they all gave what they saw. And then the next time they tried it, they gave what they saw, and then they allowed them all to stand together, all the eyewitnesses chatting for a little bit. And then they were interviewed a second time. Now, compared to the first time when they were re-interviewed, most of them stood to the same story when they were re-interviewed without being collaborating with the other eyewitnesses. But for the folks who did get to collaborate afterwards, they went back and they were re-interviewed and they gave different details. They gave more details that were similar to other eyewitnesses who were there. So what it showed is there was a contamination that wasn't necessarily intended, but it happens subconsciously. You naturally just talk to the other person about what you saw, not realizing you're contaminating their memory. So suddenly they saw a red light instead of a yellow light. So it's just human error as well, which is very scary. Let me add another factor here. And that is the duration. Okay. How long did you get to see? Now forget that it's hoodies and it's nighttime. The difference between a 12 second exposure and a 45 second exposure is stark. The lower the time, the higher the rate of mistaken identification. And this brings us to the next factor, right? People think, and I'm talking about jurors, it's higher stress, so you're paying more attention. (laughs) <laughs> the science is the opposite. The higher the stress, the lower the success. Wow. Okay. So we call that a bell curve. Really low stress, not doing anything. Medium stress, I'm actually okay. Mm. High stress, I'm lousy at identification. And oh, I just want to say, when there's a gun going off and you're diving to cover your kids, You not only have the weapons focus, but you have the high stress. If you're focused on something else, you're not focused on the face. 99% of the eyewitnesses are people who are truly crime victims, who have zero motive to lie. So if I'm on the jury, I'm thinking, if they're saying that's the guy, they're not doing it out of malice. They're not doing it out of hatred. You're right, actually. I was looking at the numbers on the Registry of Exonerations, which for anybody that's interested in all of this, you can go there and play with all the statistics and see what most cases consist of for those who are exonerated. But one one thing I'm noticing is the amount of exonerations due to eyewitness identification, it just keeps going up, which is good because we're making improvement and people are being exonerated based on faulty eyewitness identification but also the two largest crimes in there when it comes to eyewitness misidentification in for eyewitnesses is murder and sexual assault. Yes. Now, if you think about it, sexual assault normally has one victim. These are people that don't intend to lie. They probably sure. want more than anything for this person to be captured and sentenced and, and get justice. But they truly believe in their heart that they have identified the correct person. So if I may do two quick stories, one of the most important books ever, and for anyone concerned about justice and also the human condition is called Picking Cotton. The title comes from a woman who was raped and picked Ronald Cotton as her rapist. She turned out to be wrong. It was proved wrong with DNA. Her name is Jennifer Thompson Camino. 
and they became best friends. I best saw this, people. and they go and speak together. They go and speak together, and the book is chapter by chapter. They alternate voices. Wow. But the, the other story, and I use this when I train judges and lawyers and police, is the story of a man named John White. There is a rape, and John is developed as a suspect and put into a lineup. And so you know what a lineup is. The woman is in the room about eight or 10 feet away and says, that's him. Also in the lineup was a guy who DNA later proved to be her actual rapist. Wow. Who was by random happenstance in the same jail. He's in the lineup. What does that mean? That her memory was so impacted in some way that even though her actual rapist face is right here, she can't see it. And she picks John. And Mr. White was in jail for more than a decade until DNA showed John didn't do it. And hey, that other guy in the lineup did. Which makes you think that outside of cases such as a sexual assault where there is DNA available, how many people are sitting in prison because there was no DNA to exonerate them. So this is one of the major problems. In a weird way, the easy cases are the DNA cases. So you could have two robberies tomorrow and one where the robber is cut and bleeds or drops a cigarette and an eyewitness identifies and later we test the blood or we test the cigarette and say, my God, it couldn't be that person. Down the street, you could have another robber. No cigarette, no cut, no DNA. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's a right identification. Maybe it's not. But if it's not, we've got no magic tool to prove it. Um, I've got no way. There is. A, so the people who study eyewitness identification, there are a couple of landmark cases. And one case is called Henderson, it's a New Jersey case. And the New Jersey Supreme Court said words to the following effect, without extrinsic evidence, in other words, some DNA, a fingerprint, something, it's basically impossible to tell which eyewitness is accurate and which is sincere but mistaken. And that's an incredibly frightening statement. Our listeners, oftentimes they want to be knowledgeable on this information, but also their potential jurors possibly. So what could a juror look for? One thing is you can't blame a juror who says the eyewitness says they, they were so confident. They'll never forget that face that speaks to us somehow as human beings. Oh man. If I know that I remember that, I know a face I'll never forget. So you trust that person more. This is why eyewitness testimony is given so much weight. We just want to be able to trust someone's opinion about what they saw because we would want somebody to do that for us. Is there anything that jurors can look for when they are listening to testimony, especially if some contradicts other testimony or anything that they can ask themselves, okay, this is all we have. So here we go, okay? Number one is, again, there are some scientific factors. What was the lighting? What was the distance? How long did the crime actually take? And we have to be very careful here because if I robbed you, you'd say, gee, it felt like a minute because we overestimate time when bad things happen to us. And, and again, none of this is perfect. And we're also, I need to add one thing. Juror could say, I have a reasonable doubt and acquit and be absolutely proper in doing it. But oops, it turns out the guy is guilty. But there properly was not enough evidence. The great news is that a lot of these cases are getting a second look finally. But if we could stop it at the trial phase and make people really require more corroborating evidence or look at all of the facts surrounding this identification to make sure it's it's a good solid one, then we wouldn't have to get to the point where we're exonerating people. We just would make I, sure I, we're convicting the right people. 
I, I would push it one step back. It's the good police departments that are actually going to be the best check against wrongful convictions. Mm. I'd have a lot of respect if I were doing a case with Chris. Right. The key, key thing he said here is that case went unsolved. It's still unsolved. Yeah. And a lot of police officers would say, man, now nobody's doing time for it. You should have just had somebody. It would it would make everybody feel better. It would bring the family justice. But so that, that's not the way it's supposed to work. That's not justice. True justice is having the right perpetrator behind bars. That's mm-hmm. true justice for the family and for the defendant. I always like to throw it back to our experts, Jules. What can law enforcement do to ensure that their witness is giving accurate information? So you're not going to the first part of my answer because the answer is at the end of the day, nothing. Mm. And the reason I say that is because our eyes and our memories are so imperfect that even if law enforcement does every single thing right, Sometimes we'll have mistakes, Uh but the way to really bring the numbers down, I'm going to say a couple of things because it's all bundled into doing the investigation. Number one is learn how to interview where you're not planting the mustache. You're learning from the witness if there was a mustache. Number two, go to the scene. Stand in their shoes, recreate the crime, and make your own assessment. Could anyone really see a darn thing? Mm-hmm. Number three is then learn those best practices for the investigation how to do the interviewing, how to conduct a lineup, things to tell the witness before a lineup. Do you know that if you say one sentence, Ma'am, I'm going to show you a lineup. The person who did this crime may or may not be in it. Mm -hmm. That if I add those or may not, people feel less pressure. The number of wrong IDs goes down. So I, I will say this. Most departments that I've worked for, except for my current police department, which we just adopted a new policy of reading an admonition sheet. Most departments that I've worked for, they have an admonition sheet that you you read and it says exactly what you just said. The person that you are responsible for this crime may or may not be involved in this lineup. And they ask you to study all six or 12 or nine pictures or how many ever you have in there. And it tells you to take your time. And the reason why most police departments have adopted that policy is because of exactly what you just said. There's pressure being on the other side. You think about you're the only eyewitness to a crime of, of murder. And, you know, you want to get it right. And I believe a lot of the eyewitnesses and maybe some of these witnesses that were responsible for misidentifying somebody, they wanted to do what was right. So that's a lot of pressure for someone to be in, not to mention the pressure that's involved with them just being a witness to such a heinous crime. There are a lot of outside pressures that go along into these investigations, and I think that needs to be taken into consideration. Thank you so much, Professor Epstein. We really appreciate your time tonight. Thank you for what you do and for contributing to some of these exonerations. That's fantastic. Again, thank you both. Getting information out is really important for lots of reasons in this world. I'll leave it at that. Good night. That's it for tonight. We covered a lot. We covered a lot tonight. Yes. Until next time. Thanks for listening to the Crime and Cookie Juice podcast. Good night, guys.